the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 930 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Any of you know Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and executive director at the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And it's a pleasure to welcome all of you to Caregiver SOS on air. And Carol, we got a really interesting guest coming on. Twenty-six years, Nancy Weckworth has been a caregiver. Well, you, that she's earned expert status in in my book, um, and not only that, she is here in the studio with us. But she lives in California, which that doesn't happen very often for the someone to fly down and sit in the studio with us. So. Indeed, and often we can't get people from San Antonio to come to the studio. I so. know, I know. So, cool. so she gets props. Nancy gets props for for being here and for all of the work that she's done. Powerful over the years. story. Husband has a stroke and it begins a journey about which she knew nothing, which is often true of caregivers. Wow, that sounds so familiar. Exactly. Meanwhile, you have pulled out some really interesting items from the news, and I want to kick off with the year of living Danishly. Yes, I I saw the name of this book, and I was intrigued. A, because it sounds like a Danish that you eat, and B, I'm also fascinated with Scandinavian countries, and I don't know why that is, considering I'm from Amarillo, where there's no one from Scandinavia. So I didn't know it was going to be 89 degrees outside, but the Year of Living Danishly, it's talking about how do you get through the winter, (laughs) think snow and cold. (laughs) <laughs> when, um, you know, it's dark and the groundhog saw his sh- uh, or saw the sun, so he got scared and ran back in, and it's going to keep on going. But there's a Danish word that's catching on. It's like Trumpism and Brexit, it said. That's how popular this word is. And it's pronounced hygge. I can't even say it. You're supposed to spit when you say it, but I'm not sure where <laughs> I'm supposed to spit. Um, so it's a word that just it means um, fellowship and coziness. So think, think candles. Think a fireplace, think a hot cup of cocoa, snow falling outside. It's creating an atmosphere where everything is simple and quiet. And if we had a fireplace and cocoa, you know, we wouldn't care if it was 89 degrees outside. And, and, you know, we would be just enjoying each other's company and having this conversation about caregiving, you know, kind of informally. Sounds like mindfulness. Well, it is kind of mindfulness, but it's also um, about um, getting, you know, getting out. You have to get fresh air every for Hugo and whatever the word is to be doing Hugo. it. Hugo. Um, you have to get out in the day, in the outdoors every day. Um, you limit your screen time. And, and it's okay. You want to share your meals with others. So it's really about being in small groups, having conversation, and being relaxed. And I don't know. I, you know, this sounds like a really good prescription for caregivers, too, because you may not be able to have big fancy dinners. You may not be able to get out a lot, but maybe a little walk, maybe a few friends for dinner. You can go for dinner. Um, anybody that can drink hot tea, hot cocoa, I personally drink hot liquids year-round um, and find them very relaxing. Maybe you want to put ice in yours and have a cold drink. That's okay, too. We're going to let that one go if it's 89 outside. Years ago, I worked for Pete Peterson when he was Secretary of Commerce. Commerce Department Secretary's Office has a huge fireplace, and Pete would have a fire in there every day, no matter how hot it was in Washington, D.C. And and turn the air conditioning up. I was going to say, and did you sweat or no. take off your jacket? No, that's when they didn't worry about energy. All right. So if you're looking for this word, this Danish word, it's spelled <laughs> H-Y-G-G-E. H-Y-G-G-E. Hygge. Hygge. Only one vowel. Well, 
I before you and sometimes why. I know. But, you know, you just can never have too many G's in any word. No, that's Sorry. right. So go out and practice that. Go have some hot All right. Cocoa. So we're going to Year of Living Danishly, which really is a good title for a book. Uh, another topic that you pulled out of the news, and it's important. Uh, we talk about exercise all the time as being if you've got someone with Alzheimer's, no matter what it is, exercise seems to be as close as we'll get to the magic bullet. And you found a piece on Parkinson's disease and exercise. Well, what fascinated me, you and I have talked about Parkinson's disease and exercise. And at our senior centers that are the WellMed Charitable Foundation runs in Texas, we do have um, dancing with Parkinson's and classes for people with Parkinson's. But what fascinated me about this piece in the New York Times was that people with Parkinson's, no one's telling them about exercise, the the need to get exercise as soon as possible after diagnosis. So the drugs for Parkinson's work very well initially. People feel good, and so they don't really think about going out and getting exercise. But the truth of the matter is that the exercise rewires your brain about movement. So Parkinson's is not a muscular degenerative disease. Your muscles aren't doing anything. Your brain isn't telling your muscles how to work. So the problems walking, the gait problems, the balance problems, the speech problems associated with Parkinson's are something in your brain. And so the exercise can help keep those muscles strong. It rewires your brain because uh, endurance exercise and a lot of activity is not the same as small spurts. So the longer you exercise and exercise robustly, the better it is for your Parkinson's disease. And that's the message that physical therapists are saying in this article in the New York Times. That's the message that's not getting out to the families. It's a message caregivers should also know because often uh, they're the ones who can get somebody up and moving uh, and exercise with them. Well, absolutely. It's good for everyone. And who wouldn't want their loved one to be mobile, you know, fewer symptoms uh, and functioning better or longer? Uh, And, you know, that... There's not a lot of things that will get some people to exercise, but that might be, you know, the the real um, enticement to That's exercise. A good tip. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Nancy Weckwith joins us in just a couple of moments. Uh, Nancy lives out in California. She uh, is in San Antonio for the show. Last night, uh, she was in Laredo for a caregiver conference. She's going to talk about. Not only caregiving, but over 26-plus years, what she has learned caregiving for her husband. Title of her book, Don't Stop the Music. That's coming up in just a moment. Now, moving on. New take on mindfulness. Speaking of mindfulness. Speaking of mindfulness. So you were like, it's you were reading, reading my mind on mindfulness. Yes. That was pretty good. So this was a blog from the Mayo Clinic that I read. And I really liked it because it was written by someone who works with people who have dementia. And they were talking about the way that, you know, we as professionals live. Most people live in the United States. We're multitasking. We're on our phones. We're stressed. We're working. We hear about mindfulness. We're not really into meditation. And this particular professional caregiver was saying they found it very easy to be mindful when they were working with people with Alzheimer's because the person with Alzheimer's can only exist if you've been around someone with dementia in the present moment anyway. So it was the, so they were talking about how when they were with Alice, you know, they would slow their gait down and walk with her. When they were with Joe, you know, he liked to do certain things. And so they were in the moment helping Joe plant the plants or pet the dog or, you know, and and so I really enjoyed you know, kind of the visual of thinking about, you know, this is an alternative form of mindfulness because maybe you're a caregiver and you're caring for someone with dementia and you really don't have time to meditate. But if you can think about slowing down your actions, just being with that person in their world in that moment, you know, then maybe you can get some of those benefits um, as well by just being with them. It's interesting. I know one of the things that uh, you have told us that United Healthcare focuses on is that whole concept of being there now. Yes, be there now. And, you know, and it, that's harder to do than it sounds because at work, you know, the be there now means if someone's talking to you, you can't have like the computer. You can kind of see the computer on the side. You're kind of looking at your email list. You know, you really you have to. I consciously sometimes I'll turn off my screen of my computer, turn and face the person, and I am just focusing on them. 
You mean there's an off button? <laughs> there's actually yes. They, really? Yeah, it's in the new. It's in the new version of oh, most computers okay. and phones. They have the off button, so you can actually turn <laughs> yeah. it off. In the early days, they didn't want you to turn it off. Now you need to disconnect sometimes. I like that. Yeah. So so I mean, just whatever your caregiving situation. Maybe um, Nancy has a take on that uh, as well. But in terms of being there now, um, and that can be also. You know, being able to enjoy the small things and being able to enjoy the humorous things that happen uh, when you're caregiving. So, you know, like with my mother, when we placed her in the assisted living facility and it was a complete disaster, could not have gone worse. And she looks at my dad and says, well, that didn't work. What's next? I like that. You know, and so, you know, here we are all stressed out and we all just burst out laughing because she's absolutely right. So it's just that, you know, just taking that time to maybe that's Hugo, too. And she had dementia, so even she could see Even she could see that, right. So just, you know, taking those little moments, being in the present, enjoying what's good in this moment, uh, not worrying about the doctor appointment and the medications and everything else that you're doing. Just enjoying what you're doing here now that's working. That would work if you have perhaps three little kids. Well, it, it, it <laughs> might I run. Do. It might run. I don't know. Go out and tell me. And you come back, you can say if that worked with your three children. That. I like that. And finally, as we pick topics from the news before we bring, bring Nancy Weckworth on, and this is something that, uh, again, has been so much in the news over the last year or so, who will care for the caregivers? Poor Nancy, 26 years caring for her husband, God forbid, when she needs caregiving, who's going to be there? Well, that's right. And this is another, this is from The Upshot, which is a, a, another column in the New York Times. And what I liked about this column was that it was written by a medical doctor. Um, and he said, um, I should have I put his socks back on. And so you're wondering, what does that mean? And what he said is that here he had a patient, he had the patient remove his socks, um, and then the caregiver comes in the room, and the socks are still crumpled up on the table, and the caregiver automatically goes in and helps her dad, because this is a daughter, put his socks back on. And he's thinking, this poor woman is managing all these medications. She has so much to do. The least I could have done as the physician was help him put his socks back on. And so he was thinking about all of the data that we talk about on the show where we don't have as many caregivers in the United States. People don't have as many children. People are living longer, so you could end up 26 years or longer caring for someone like Nancy. Um, and that that burden, if you are have three children like you have, as well as other relatives that may need care, you know, how much burden can we put on certain people in society to be caregivers? And so he's just saying, when, when is this going to change? Uh, because look around, there's only so many people. We don't pay well for informal care for the direct care workers. So who is going to care for the caregivers who actually do have more disease, more stress, and depression. need to professionalize caregiving and pay it what it ought yeah, to be we gotta have, We're going to have some benefits Let's more hope. to follow, so we'll be talking about that. Nancy Weckworth joins us in just a couple of moments. Nancy has written a book about her experience, uh, The Roller Coaster of Caregiving, beginning 26 or so years ago when her husband has a stroke, or her significant other, I think is what you say, your partner. Either way, doesn't matter. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer, Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it uh, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio. And get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. This is Sam Donaldson. Fifty years in the news business taught me that each day brings a new story. Retirement is just the beginning of a lifelong adventure if we keep learning, stay active, and give back. All secrets to healthy aging. 
That's what Oasis is about. Explore our history. Take a fitness class. Tutor a child. It's your time to try something new at Oasis. Call 210-236-5954 or oasisnet.org forward slash San Antonio. Well, that's a piece of yesteryear when you hear Sam Donaldson do that public service announcement. He was leather lungs when Ronald Reagan would walk to the helicopter on the back lawn of the White House. You could hear Sam Donaldson yelling out a question. And uh, nice to know that he's still around he's kicking st- and doing stuff. He's an Oasis volunteer, and so he helps teach classes at Oasis. He's a member, and we have a local Oasis here in San Antonio, but there are Oasis all over the country, so check it out. I like that. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernail on Caregiver SOS On Air. On 9.30 a.m., The Answer, and it's a pleasure to welcome Nancy Weckworth to our Caregiver SOS On Air studios. She's here from Southern California and a realtor in her other life. But 26 years ago, her significant other has a stroke. Thanks for coming in and telling your story. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Tell us what happened. Well, I was at work one day at the retail store where I worked, and I got a call, and they said, your husband is being rushed to a hospital. Can you get here? And I said, what hospital? And he had the car, so I borrowed a car from a friend, jumped in the car, and rode across 35 miles of California freeways in rush hour to get to the hospital. It took about six days to get there. Close to it. <laughs> but it's a real surprise when you get there, and there's your, your loved one laying on a table. The room is black, and I felt like there was a huge spotlight just shining on us. And everything else was black. I was numb. I didn't know anything. They didn't tell me it was stroke. They didn't know. And so I was talking to him for a few minutes. And I don't really remember the conversation. I don't remember what we said. But all of a sudden, he picked up his right arm with his left hand, and he lifted it up in the air, and he let it go. And he goes, look. And he was having a second stroke. And at that point in time, the... Um, the hospital was not even treating him because we hadn't been approved yet by the insurance company. So they were just laying there, and I did not know that that conversation I had with him for about five minutes was the last real conversation we would ever have with him speaking normally. Ever? Uh, ever. His speech now is very minimal. He's an amazing human being. I'm very proud of him. He inspires me every day because how of how hard he worked to get back the speech that he has. But we've been at it for a while now, and so he's, he's now 78, so we're starting to reach that other little area of our lives where things start to turn down again. When you began this journey, uh, had you thought at all about being his caregiver at some point in your relationship? I didn't know what the word stroke meant, and I certainly didn't know what the word caregiver meant. I'd never even thought about it. Well, besides his speech, what else was impacted by the stroke? He lost the use of his right-hand side of his body. He could no longer walk or use his right arm. And there's also the little issue called aphasia, where they just their brain doesn't process information properly, and they have difficulties communicating, not only because of speech, but there's um, cognitive issues that come into play with all of this. Now, he had a stroke 26 years ago before uh, some of the clotbuster drugs were on the market. Very true. The doctor did ask me at the time if I wanted to try one of those drugs, and I said, I don't know. I didn't even know what was going on. And I said, if it was your family member, would you do it? And he said, no. He said no. He said no, because there wasn't enough known about the drug at the time. It was IPA, but it hadn't been marketed long. Right. Now, for those who are listening who've just joined us, uh, the kind of stroke she's describing where they would use a clot buster drug is ischemia. The other kind of stroke is hemorrhagic, a blood bleed in the brain. He had a blood clot that popped loose somewhere. Well, actually, it was a platelet clot due to a disease called fibromuscular dysplasia that was in his carotid artery, and that chunk of platelets broke off. Wow. Well, I had a friend that caught that same kind of... Uh, phenomenon caused a heart attack because mm-hmm. uh, it lodged in the heart, whereas mm-hmm. in your case of, of your husband, it lodged in his brain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that journey begins. Uh, y- you must have learned pretty quickly about stroke. Yeah, it was an unfortunate lesson, but it's when these things happen, 
I like what your your thought about the mindfulness. You just zoom into what's going on at the moment, and you spend the next days, weeks, hours, and in my case now years, putting out fires. And it's when you start to be able to turn it around from the putting out fires to looking at the concepts of what you're doing and how you can make your life better that things start to change. And my whole goal with John throughout the entire process was to give him the highest quality of life possible. That was one of the first decisions I made. And what did that mean? Well, John was a professional musician. He was one of the Played trumpet. Yeah, he was a trumpet player. He was one of the top ten trumpet players in Los Angeles. And we both had full-time careers in the music business. And I had a part-time job at a local retail store. But John is the consummate artist. He has spent his life from the time he was 13 years old playing trumpet and writing music. He has hundreds of published compositions, two jazz albums out, and he had a great career in many cities. And so he lives to play music, to perform. I didn't know what this man would do if he could not do that. So I set out finding ways to make that happen for him again. And? He practices every day. He writes music every day. Now we go out to stroke support groups, and he and I play little concerts for them on trumpet and piano, and the tears in the audience within seconds is unbelievable. They are so inspired with this man who has only one arm. He plays trumpet with the other hand, and we have trumpets altered so that he can hold them in one hand. And he gets up, and he sounds magnificent. His sound quality, his pitch, and everything is still there. It's gorgeous to hear him play. So I'm, I'm picturing, as you're saying this, I'm picturing a trumpet, holding the trumpet in one hand and pushing the buttons in the other. So what, all, what do you have to do to get be able to play it with one hand? Yeah, for Louis Armstrong I was going to say you would be husband. really good. Yeah, well, he, you hold the trumpet with your thumb and your little pinky finger, mm-hmm. and, then and the other three, three fingers push down the, the valves. So he needed a grip play the valves, so he mm-hmm. could hold it that way. Right, right. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Just, I mean, just that alone. Okay, everyone go home and try to play a musical instrument with one hand. Okay, <laughs> now think about this. The trumpet is normally played with the right hand, and so your whole brain with everything is learned all of the fingering positions right, yeah, of the right hand. Right. So he had to teach his brain how to, read to everything backwards. <laughs> everything. Wow. A mirror image. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you miss Roland, who you know, runs the board for us. He's a musician, too. He just went, wow. <laughs> Roland plays voice. What else do you play? <laughs> <laughs> he reads music. If you had to read the, you know, everything, flip the whole staff and read it the other way around. I mean, that's like, that makes your brain hurt just thinking about it. As you start, and your commitment, as you said, was to get him uh, back to a quality of life. Uh, you're his caregiver. Uh, with any other kind of help that, that you were able to bring in, or were you doing this on your own? I've done it on my own the whole time. There's been nobody else to help. So Why? You, I'm John's sorry. family lives lived in Toronto, and his mother was quite old at that time. My family lives in Minnesota. They did not have the financial ability to come out and help. My mother came out for a few days, but she was not the type of person that was able to do it, and she ended up sitting on the couch weeping. She was so upset. That would be helpful. <laughs> so, <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Yeah. So I put her on a plane, and I said, go home. Right. Wow. She meant well. She meant well. Of but course. it just was Some people can do this. Other people cannot. And that's been an important lesson for me, not to judge those who can't, because you, if you can, you can. If you can't, you can't. Right. But, but, but knowing the difference is also important for those people who really can't do it, knowing that they, you can't do it. It's so important rather than doing it. Just uh, If you can't do it, find someone who can. can. In terms of the support you got from the medical community, he, he needed... She's looking at me with eyes that just got 19 inches wide. Like, what What help what, were you talking about? Exactly. Uh, what, what kind of support were you getting? He had to go into a rehab program. Someone had to provide. Did, did anybody put his socks on as we were talking in the first segment, the doctor that took the socks off? Anybody put them back on for there you? There were a few nurses who were really angels and helped out a lot, and they taught me uh, a whole bunch of things that were very useful. But his... Trip in the rehab was only in a really good rehab hospital was only about two weeks, and then he was put, placed in a skilled nursing facility because they didn't think that he would ever recover. Right, and in and in those days they didn't 
you know, if you didn't, if you weren't going to improve, then you just kind of got kicked out. There was no requirement to continue providing right. those services. Right. So he right. needed all kinds of vocational training. He needed a lot of things. He needed to learn how to walk. He needed to learn how to dress himself, how to speak, um, how to eat. He couldn't even eat by himself. He could do nothing. So what can what did he eventually learn to do through the process of you working with him, it sounds like? Well, John and I spent the first two and a half years doing um, in-home care, and I learned how to do rehab. I went to every session that he had, and thanks to the musicians of Local 47 in Los Angeles, they had a huge fundraiser for us, and they raised enough money for us to pray privately for therapy for two and a half years. Wow. And so I attended all the sessions, and we worked every day. Tell us what that means in just a minute, because uh, folks who have not been through this, and nobody wishes a stroke on anybody or caregiving for someone with a stroke on anyone, but it'd be useful to know, because you hear this all the time. I, I have a good friend here, Tim Dirk, used to be the Spurs Coyote, who had a stroke, and he said the same thing when, when he was going through rehab, that he worked and worked and worked. Uh, let's find out what that really means here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking with Nancy Weckworth about her journey, 26 years as a caregiver for a man who had a, a, an incredible, difficult time with a stroke and now is uh, playing music again. That's pretty cool. We thank you so much for riding along with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 9.30 a.m., The Answer. Podcasts of all of our shows are available. Just go to caregiversos.org, and you can find podcasts for this and every other show that we have done for the last 300 years right here on 9.30 a.m., The Answer, although it seems just like yesterday when we started these programs, Carol. Well, it does. It's gone so fast, and and now we're not only on caregiversos.org, we're also on iTunes. We are. tell your friends and relatives. They're free downloads from iTunes. And you can pick up uh, Caregiver SOS on air. We're talking with Nancy Weckworth about uh, the journey of uh, trying to help her significant other recover uh, from a, a really debilitating stroke 26 years ago. She gets a call working in a retail store where she'd been part-time, has to get her way across Los Angeles to a hospital uh, where she didn't even know what had happened to him for a while. We're talking about the work that you two put in uh, to recover to the extent that now he's actually performing again. Uh, What did that take? When you say work, what, what does that mean? Well, the moment after the stroke, he lost his ability to speak and read and do everything. So the first language I wanted to teach him was music because I knew that would be his salvation to give him a qual- highest quality of life possible. So I brought in an, um, a toy that I could draw on, and I drew a musical staff, and I handed him a little magnet, and he started to draw notes, and I almost wept. Because like an Etch-a-Sketch. Very similar to an extra sketch, um, so he was able. He understood what music was right away. So then he that was on the third day after his stroke that I started doing that. And at that point, he only had vision in one eye. So it was a long road from there through beginning music books, all the way back through everything. I taught him how to. Um, I took little kids' piano books. And I had him color all the F's on the piano keyboard red and all the G's blue, just teaching him all of the concepts of music from the beginning like he would teach a child. Now, what our listeners may not know is you have an extensive background in music. Oh, yeah. I was a professional performer, too. Now, piano? Because you, you mentioned My major piano. instrument is French horn and composition, but I've played piano since I was four and a half years old. The piano is basically a tool for me. But I, I do okay on the piano. So you began the work of, of bringing music back to life for him. Exactly. And that was the whole point. I wanted him to be able to do as much as he could because I knew he lived in the world of music inside his head. Well, I think that, you know, the for, for the people listening that maybe they're not musicians, but what's important about what you're saying is that you identified what was it that was going to motivate him, that was going to bring him comfort um, and that was something that you also could do share together. 
um, and you built on that foundation. And so for people working with their family member, that you know, I think that's a really keen insight into looking at what is it that's going to mean something and, and provide that quality of life, what's music or something else. It could be anything, and the reason I titled my book, Don't Stop the Music, it really has very little to do about music itself, because we each have our own music, whether it's whether you're a road worker, whether you work in a radio studio, it's your passion. Music is our passion, and so my goal was to not stop the music or the passion in our lives, and if it had ended up being that we had to change something, as I did I changed my passion. John still lives his passion, and we were able to do that. And I think that's critical for any caregiver to look at what it is that makes the person happy and then support that. You changed your passion how? Now I'm a total advocate for sharing with the rest of the world what he and I learned about how to do this and live in joy. Because caregiving is a tough, tough job. And there are ways to make your life easier and much more pleasant that removes the burden from your life as a caregiver. Well, and the word finding the joy means that it's not obvious. So for a lot of us who are caregivers, you know, joy is not the first word that comes to our mind when we think about the duties of caring for somebody else. Quite the opposite. Whenever anyone mentions the word caregiver, all these red flags go up for people and they get all tense and they just panic because they don't know how they would ever do it. But just last night I did an entire lesson with about 10 caregivers on how to do this, and they had a wonderful time. And one of the things I discussed is a lesson that I learned when I was working with John. We moved to a new home where I had to begin bathing him again because he couldn't get in and out of the tub by himself. So I had to assist with the process. And I was tearing my hair out because I was still working. I'm doing this. I got 1,500 million things. How was I going to add yet another task to my day? And I'm going through this, and the anger is rising, and the frustration is rising in me. And all of a sudden, some light clicked in my head, and I said, I don't have to do this. I get to do this to provide a loving service to him. So last night in this caregiver group, I had everybody write down something that they were angry about that they had to do for their loved one. And I said, then what we're going to do is we're going to take that one word, I have to do this, and that the next sentence you write is, I get to do this. And when that happens... I saw the eyes light up, and everybody said, the burden leaves. And I said, yeah, the task is still there, but the burden is gone, and that's how you find joy in doing this. What kind of uh, topics did they raise? Um, One person said, my honey-do list. One person said, everything is always about them. I have to do all of the driving. Um, I have to do all the repair work in the house. There was... A wide variety, and I thought there would be a lot of the same thing, but people were coming up with a wide variety of things that were challenging for them. Yeah, and we talk about you know something similar in our stress busting classes where you reframe. So there's nothing you can do about the fact that your husband had a stroke and some of his abilities were knocked out, but you can change the way you respond to you know this caregiving situation instead of thinking of it as something awful. Reframing it and say. You know, this is a privilege. You know, the the second day after the stroke, when I came back to the hospital and John was laying there, and I had discovered that he couldn't speak, because that was new. That was a surprise when I walked back in. And he was laying on the bed, and I said, John, this ju- did not just happen to you. And he somehow or another worked himself over, and he turned over in the bed and faced the wall. I said, John, this did not just happen to you. This happened to us. And we are going to choose to do this well. And he turned back and he looked at me and he reached up and he touched my hand. I'll add one little thing to this. John's stroke was on February 12th. And so it was two days before Valentine's Day. So it was on Valentine's Day that he reached up and touched my hand. And we made a pact to do this well. 
Well, and here we are, you know, this many years later, and you're in February still doing things well. You didn't walk away? No. Did you ever think about it? It never even occurred to me because this was just something that was there. And it was interesting. At the 10-year point, I looked back and I said, I've been putting out fires for 10 years. It's now time to change how I look at this. Where I am today didn't just happen overnight. This was a process for me, too, to learn all of these skills and to learn all of these lessons. And I documented a lot of the lessons and the process in my book. But it, it just happens. And so you go by one day to the next, and all of a sudden, your life has changed. And you go, how did I get here? And do I want to stay where I am, or do I want to approach it from a different place? And again, I made the choice to choose. And after 26 years, he's performing, playing the trumpet. You're accompanying him. Uh, are there goals that are still there? What else would you like to see? Well, I'm happy that he can do it. I will tell you that he's not performing at the same level that he was, and it's a real challenge for him. Does but he know? Not really. He thinks that he's the same magnificent trumpet player that he already is, or always was, and I'm okay with that because he has everything he ever wanted in his life, and that's to play his trumpet. And so... For example, we just did a stroke support group for a Christmas party, and we got up and we played a couple of Christmas carols, and this was the first Christmas concert that he and I had played together for 26 years. And I told the audience that, and the tears were coming down their faces. Because it's, it's really amazing that he can do it at all. What's next? If we can continue to do this and help other people grow and inspire others, that is our goal. Right, because with a, with a stroke, there are some things that go away and stay gone, um, and there are other things that over time, and sometimes it can be a very long time, you're, they're able to, you're like John got some of his abilities back, um, and I'm not sure how much that was, but you know, that, that, the hanging in there for the hope that something else is going to pop up. Well, I'm sure you both know the term neuroplasticity. Yes. And that is an amazing thing to watch the brain relearn tasks using a different area of the brain. It's rewiring. It's rewiring, and it's an amazing thing. I'm grateful that one of the doctors right in the beginning said to me, remember, John will always improve and keep that in place right. in your mind. That's yes. interesting. Yeah, and that, that's the hope for uh, many stroke people, for those who are listening, that you know, may be going through something similar. What was it that helped you through all this? We've got about a minute and a half left for those who are listening who may, you know, God forbid, because a stroke hits someone every 40 seconds in this country. And it's going to happen to someone who's listening or to a loved one. What was the thing that got you in the beginning uh, to get this moving and what kind of advice made a difference for you? I think it was my own personal drive that I decided this was not going to define our lives. We were going to make a life in spite of this. And I just, it's, it's a, I guess it's a personal issue that I have as a person. I just push until we get what we want. Now for folks who would like to get a hold of your book, uh, how do they do that? And do you have a website? Everybody has a website. I have a website. Of course you do. NancyWeckworthAuthor.com. And the book is available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and with the publisher, BalboaPress.com. And, and don't stop the music. Don't stop the music. Finding the joy in caregiving. Weckworth is W-E-C-K-W-E-R-T-H. Nancy Weckworth, any final comment before we let you go? I just hope that we can make someone else's life a little easier by what we're doing here today. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we yeah. appreciate you Th coming Thank here. you for being here from California. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, and moi, Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m., The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in 
since the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Take 10. We follow each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs with Take 10, where Dr. Jamie Heisman, a nationally known psychotherapist, expert on addictions and caregiving, joins us to talk about these kinds of issues that we toss out. And uh, Sometimes we hear music in the background. <laughs> we hear music. I like that. And Carol Zerniel with us as well, and I'm Ron Aaron. And Carol, you've got an interesting approach to this next topic for Take 10. Well, I was thinking about families and relationships and, you know, where, you know, you talk about oldest child, youngest child, um, parents taking care of kids, kids taking care of parents. There's all kinds of different relationships, spouses taking care of each other. Um, so, Jamie, uh, is... Does it, are we, is it different, a real, you know, if, if we are taking care of a parent, we're the child taking care of a parent, is that any different than us taking care of our kids? Is the, does the relationship matter? You know, Carol, it's a great question and a great topic today. I, I have to tell you, if you really want a blunt answer, I don't believe there is a huge difference. Um, that's from my perspective clinically. I think we bring a, a ton of ghosts and goblins always into a relationship no matter what it is that's unresolved, if we haven't had therapy around it and have been able to, to come to some sort of transformative sort of place. And so whether it's our children, whether we're caregiving our sister, our brother, our mother, our father, um, these issues lurk in the background, and, and those dynamics kind of project us in a way that um, I think it, it, it doesn't matter until we actually address them. Well, so what about the, let's say, a spousal caregiver, um, a friend of mine who said she's been caring for her husband for years, and she said, I don't really feel like his wife anymore. I feel more like his sister. So yeah. her feel well, actually, that, 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 so yeah. for her, the, the situation made her feel like this relationship. She was in family, family, but you know what I'm talking about. The relationship was different. No doubt, no doubt. And then the interesting thing I would say, whether somebody's caregiving somebody with a chronic or terminal illness, anywhere from Alzheimer's to to Parkinson's or even heart uh, disease, you'll find out that even in quote-unquote healthy relationships where neither party is feeling um, sick even, um, that they also have that same feeling of starting to tend to whether I'm a spouse or whether I'm starting to feel like uh, a brother or sister. So um, now the, the disease or the chronic illness will certainly more exacerbate and bring up these issues and make us more aware. Um, but it just goes to say that whether you are a caregiver or not, uh, addressing these ghosts and goblins in therapy or her feeling of feeling like a sister now instead of a wife is extremely important uh, to, to get a therapist and to talk about it. So Why? Well, the, the ghosts and goblins will catch up with you, Ron, no matter what. Um, in fact, they're starting to see even intergenerational trauma, which means that uh, if your grandparents had a trauma or your parents had a trauma that somehow or another gets passed through the ages unless it's left unresolved. Um, and so uh, what we say, we're kind of doomed to recreate our issues until we intervene on them. So getting a therapist allows us to become aware allows us to understand and hopefully transform and hopefully come to grips, if you will, with who we are, uh, mind, body, and soul, and the boundaries, which will help us, obviously, work with our loved ones who are providing care for. Well, and I think your point is 
it's very important. Um, the dy- family dynamics, you know, are very hard for families themselves to deal with. That's why there are marriage counselors. That's why there are other therapists um, thinking about, you know, caregivers where you've got siblings trying to care for mom and dad and siblings have different roles and they're fighting with each other and they're not helping each other and all those kind of dynamics. And in in those situations, you've talked about bringing in a geriatric care manager. You know, families can be messy. Relationships can be messy. And so a lot of times we do need an sort of an outside coach to help navigate those changes. Yeah, you're so right. Providing care for a loved one brings out kind of either the best in us as caregivers or the worst in us in sibling relationships. I mean, ideally, the the experience of caregiving is a time for, we hope, siblings to come together and and to provide mutual support and to game plan this together and get on the same page. But, you know, it's a stressful transition, and, and the pressure can lead to strained connections, and we can go back to those ghosts and goblins of childhood and say, you know, was I the favorite? Was was my sister the favorite? Um, what's happening here? Who's creating alliances? It almost sounds like a, a reality show, like Big Brother. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Take 10, segment that follows each and every one of our shows. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel, and Dr. Jamie Heisman is on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline talking about relational differences and how that may make a difference in caregiving. We're talking about it from the standpoint of the caregiver, what about from the standpoint of the care recipient? Now, that's an extremely interesting uh, question because I think there is a different dynamic here. I think what the actual, I mean, even though everybody seeks balance and safety out, I think when the care recipient who has a chronic or, or terminal illness, if you will, is it, it, it does impact them that they cognitively obviously are aware, maybe even more so than the caregiver, because they want to feel like these unresolved issues, these ghosts and goblins don't exist. They're fearful, They're, as anybody would. You know, the anxiety of having an illness or knowing your mortality is around the corner um, and being in the presence of somebody who hasn't resolved issues um, makes the person feel unsafe. They're already fighting battles and windmills, if you will, from the medical world and, and medications and, and where my life is going. So to your point, Ron, you know, I, I kind of believe the care receiver what they really crave most is safety and to be around a person they trust, uh, feel safe with themselves. Well, and what I might add to this conversation is from a, especially a care recipient point of view, um, we've had guests, multiple guests over the years that have talked about parenting your parents. When you become the parent of the person that you're caring for, you know, you switch places, which I don't really believe. And the reason I don't Um, support that idea is that you know your parents are always your parents and if you know you think about your parents perspective here they are they're frail they're needing care and all of a sudden you're acting like you're the parent which is kind of an insult to them and that can't feel very good from a care recipient perspective to all of a sudden have your your child treating you like you're the kid i think that's a different mentality everything up carol yeah, no, no, excuse me for cutting you off there. No. Um, because it, it really does, I totally agree with you. Invariably, I mean, caregiving and the demands of it um, brings out old patterns in us and, and unresolved tensions. And every time we jump into this role of parenting our parents, um, to me it's a role, and roles are always not good to be in. I mean, the, ro- the opposite of, of playing a role is being authentic. <laughs> so... And it's also not fair to, to anybody else because you're actually working with siblings and now you've assumed the role of parenting your parent. Well, that's not true. You, you're a daughter or a son taking care of your family as a caregiver in a very challenging situation. But everybody needs to feel safe that the roles are, are pretty well there, defined, and boundaried. When you say safe, what do you mean? Well, you know, to me, um, as I as I work with Obviously, anybody. Children is, is the best example. But a child can never grow, Ron, unless they feel safe. You know, if they're in a, a very chaotic or abusive household or relationship with their mom and dad that doesn't allow them to feel safe, they can't grow. And that's totally true for adults as well and for caregivers, too, That it, it, and for the care receiver. Certainly, when I say grow for a caregiver receiver, it's really to be able to accept and become aware and, and, and actually uh, get 
better thoughts and not negative thoughts. But safety is critical. And, to, and again, back to the safety issue, to take care of ourselves, to, to quote-unquote take your oxygen first, is the first step of allowing your loved one to feel safe with you and you with yourself and understanding these roles that, that we're put into when we care good. Right. You know, I was uh, thinking about uh, the guest that we had on the show t- that had been, uh, you know, a caregiver, Nancy Weckworth, for 26 years. Um, and she was talking about, you know, making her husband feel comfortable, finding that what brought her joy was helping him find the joy in his own life. Uh, and so that's what kept her her relationship alive was really putting some energy into maintaining that relationship, whether it's you you know your parents and helping them find the joy and you working with them or a spouse. So you know I think what what you bring to that relationship, the more positive that you bring to the relationship, the better it's going to work out in the end. Got about fifteen seconds, Jamie. Final thought. Uh, yeah, I think that what Carol said is spot on. And I think that also goes with the care receiver, that they have to put in perspective. And then they put their life in perspective that they're living here to help maybe others before they pass on. Um, they find meaning, too, and that energy returns to them as well. Perfect. Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Thank you for joining us on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikhoff, we come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.